Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president and the Socialist Party candidate as well in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize and advocate around the eco-socialist platform that Angela Walker and I ran on. So this week we got uh, some good news uh, on that front relating to the Mountain Valley Pipeline. I think last week or the week before, I lamented that the debt ceiling deal that Biden cut with the Republicans paved the way for finishing construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. It goes from northwestern West Virginia to southern Virginia and then on to North Carolina. And it's for fracked fossil gas from the Marcellus and Utica shale formations in Pennsylvania and Ohio in West Virginia, and those formations run into New York, although we have a ban on fracking at this point. Um, these, this is the kind of fossil fuel infrastructure project that we campaigned against in 2020. We said no new fossil fuel infrastructure projects. And this project's designed to bring massive amounts of fracked fossil gas to market for decades to come. It's a huge climate bombing of the climate. It's a huge carbon bombing of the climate. So what happened on Monday was the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals construction, which is kind of remarkable because that debt ceiling law explicitly said uh, all necessary permits for the construction are to be approved, and it stripped the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals of jurisdiction over the case which raises a constitutional issue. And the lawsuit said that that's what uh, Congress did, overstepped its powers, violated the separation of powers by saying the fourth district didn't have jurisdiction. And the fourth district said, hell yeah, we got jurisdiction. And then they blocked construction of a segment of the uh, pipeline that's going through a federally protected, I think it's a national park or monument or forest on environmental grounds. So it's blocked for now, but of course the fight is not over. The companies building the pipeline are appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I think, you know, after that debt ceiling, people didn't stop fighting and they won a small victory here and hopefully it leads to a bigger victory. U.S. Supreme Court is tough, but uh, there's always going back to Congress. I mean, we got to keep fighting and uh, this shows that we should. The other thing I want to talk about before we get to questions and answers is the nuclear crisis at the Zaporizhia nuclear power complex in Ukraine. And we have a petition circulating that urges the UN General Assembly to authorize UN peacekeepers to demilitarize and secure the Zaporizhia nuclear complex because of the escalating crisis and it demands international action. So we'll put the link uh, to the petition in the chat and I urge you to sign a petition and circulate it, you know, to your friends through social media. We need to get this out there. And, you know, this crisis has really escalated over the last about five, six weeks. Um, and this is a reactor that has 5,500 spent fuel rods stored there and six nuclear reactors. And we've had concerns about the safe operation since Russia captured the complex in March of 2022. You may have seen the films. They went in there guns blazing. They, they set one of the buildings on fire at the complex and then soon began locating troops and heavy military equipment inside the complex and then soon removed the Ukrainian management and turned the management over to Rosatom, which is Russia's state-owned nuclear energy corporation. Um, but it escalated the crisis radically a month ago on June 6th when Russia blew up the Kohovka Dam uh, on the Dnieper River, which drained the reservoir that provides water for the uh, nuclear power plant, its cooling pond. And that water is needed to cool the six reactors and about 2,000 of those 5,500 uh, fuel rods that are still cooling in storage ponds. And, you know, together with the other uh, 3,500 fuel assemblies, 
that are in dry cask storage, all 5,500 of these spent fuel rods amount to 2,200 tons of nuclear material. And that's not counting the highly radioactive material inside the six reactor cores. So of course, one fear is that the cooling pond will collapse because the dam or the, the dikes that hold the water in don't have pressure on the outside from the reservoir that's now been drained because of that dam blow up. And those dikes could rupture. And the other fear is that uh, the pond is not refilling so it could run out of water in a matter of weeks. Now, that was June 6th when the dam was blown up. On June 12th, Ukraine's environmental minister said wells in the area, water from a discharge channel from a nearby coal plant, and agricultural irrigation channels could be used to keep water in the cooling pond. Okay, but of course, Ukraine doesn't control those. Russia does. And then on June 20th, a week later, Ukraine intelligence accused the Russians of mining the cooling pond. And then 10 days later, on June 30th, Ukraine intelligence said that Russia had told its management employees to leave the plant by July 5th. And back in March, they'd already sent the families of uh, these plant employees, including the workers, uh, to Russia. And some of these people are Ukrainian. They've basically been deported forcibly, which is a war crime. And also on June 30th, Ukraine intelligence said that Russia was uh, now totally evacuating the nearby city of Enerador, which is where the nuclear workers live, uh, and told the personnel remaining, and that was the management, uh, they sent them to Crimea and told the workers that were remaining, in case anything happens, they were to blame Ukraine. Um, so then on the uh, 5th, which was the deadline for that evacuation, Ukraine intelligence said they saw possible explosives on the roofs of two of the reactors, reactors three and four. And satellite photos, you can check the news to see them. They do so show, show that something has been placed on those roofs. Now, of course, Russia's accusing Ukraine of about to create a nuclear crisis by uh, shelling the nuclear complex. But, you know, they always accuse <laughs> Ukraine of doing what they're about to do or are doing. Now, the International Atomic Energy Agency has four inspectors on the site. And while they say they have not seen any evidence of Russia mining the nuclear complex, they have also not been allowed uh, access to those sites which the Ukraine intelligence says have been mined, the cooling pond and the roofs of those reactors. So whatever the truth about the accusations flying back and forth, the situation is dire. And so what we got is this petition urging the UN General Assembly to vote to authorize peacekeepers to demilitarize and secure the Zaporizhia nuclear complex. And this is a way of getting around Russia's veto on the Security Council. The UN General Assembly does have the power uh, to bypass the UN Security Council. Um, and they, they asserted that power, and it's been used 11 times. They asserted it in 1950 in a UN General Assembly uh, resolution called Uniting for peace. Um, they actually haven't used it to send in peacekeepers since the uh, Suez crisis in 1956, when the political alignments were very different. That was when Israel, France, and the UK uh, invaded uh, Egypt to try to take back the Suez Canal, which uh, Egypt had nationalized. And uh, the US and the USSR and China opposed that invasion and they called with a Security Council resolution for uh, the French, the British and the Israelis to stop attacking Egypt. And they also urged and, and demanded that Egypt would nationalize the canal, uh, stop restricting Israeli shipping on it. So they had agreement on that, but it was vetoed by France and, and the British. So that's when the UN General Assembly authorized a peacekeeping force. And it worked um, between the US and the USSR, their power and the power of the, or the political uh, power of the UN General Assembly, uh, Israel, uh, France, and the UK withdrew. And there's still a peacekeeping force there today 
as a result of that resolution. It includes U.S. troops. So it can be done. And, you know, we believe, and I'm, I'm going to post an article here in a minute from a Ukrainian who really came up with this idea, uh, that a lot of the countries that abstain from condemning Russia's invasion, the vote was something like 141 to 5 with 35 abstentions, a lot of those that abstained on directly crossing Russia because it, it would affect, you know, their economic relations with Russia and foreign aid and security aid they get from Russia. Um, they'd be willing to support this because uh, this is not directly confronting Russia. It's confronting a nuclear catastrophe that could affect all of us. And then if, if you got that resolution passed, Russia might feel they have to step back withdraw their forces and let the UN forces come in to make sure the plant is safe and secure. So the, the petition idea came from uh, Taras Billis, who's an historian, a socialist activist, and now a soldier in Ukraine. And we had a call uh, to discuss this and you know, Taras called in from his phone somewhere in a forest near the front lines. And uh, the other Ukrainian on it was Denis Bondar, who we had on this program back in January. And he's the Ukrainian physicist working on solar technology uh, with the Ukrainian uh, lab and who's also a socialist in Satsiani uh, Ruk like, like Taras. So Taras published this article that makes the case for the politics of this being able to work. And we'll put that article uh, in the chat uh, and you can take a look at that. But, you know, the main thing I'm hoping people will do is sign this petition uh, and then get it out on your social media to your contacts and urge other people to sign it. I mean, the last thing we need is a, a massive release of nuclear radiation uh, in Ukraine, which will not only affect Ukraine, but depending on way, which way the wind's blowing, uh, Russia, uh, the rest of Europe, and really around the world. And there's really no safe level of radiation. We know from the Chernobyl accident, within 10 days, I was living in Vermont at the time, we're picking up elevated levels of radiation, including radionuclides that are, you know, dangerous, like uh, cesium and strontium, which, uh, you know, can get into your bones and, and create uh, cancer. So, um, yeah, please sign that petition. And with that, uh, let's go to questions and comments. Michael Lavery, hey, Howie, now is the time for Greens to push the climate crisis and the feckless Democrats and climate ignorant Republicans are doing nothing. Floods, fires, and triple digit temperatures. I completely agree. Um, I know we're talking here in New York, there's gonna be a big climate march September 17th in New York City. That's one thing, uh, but our candidates need to be, you know, shouting from the rooftops that what the US is doing on climate policy is far from adequate and what we're doing in our states and cities. I mean, we can call for Green New Deals uh, in our cities and states as well as the big eco-socialist Green New Deal that, that we called for in my campaign in 2020. So, yeah, I mean, this we should strike while the iron is hot. People are feeling the heat. We've had these, you know, uh, monster storms like Vermont and uh, Eastern New York, the Hudson Valley, got totally hammered earlier this week by you know, like eight inches of rain in a day. And, you know, it flooded out a lot of people. And uh, so now people, you know, are ready to consider, you know, that we need to take stronger action. So, yeah, Michael, I totally agree. Now the Greens need to be really pushing our climate policies. The email comments on the NDAA passed by the House. That's the National Defense Authorization Act. It's basically the military budget. And the Republicans added uh, a bunch of amendments that uh, go after uh, women by not allowing the uh, military to reimburse uh, women who need an abortion. You know, they travel to a provider. Um, and there's some anti-trans uh, uh, provisions in there as well. Uh, it's not going to pass in that form in the Senate. Uh, I think it will pass with those things stripped out. Um, I don't think the Senate Republicans are going to 
push as hard as the you know uh, House Republicans did on those amendments because in the end, most of those Republicans want this budget to pass. So that's you know those are sort of the poison pills that the Republicans put in there. The other thing about it is it's a it's a like a ten percent increase in military spending. I forget the exact percentage, but we're adding like eighty billion dollars to a budget that uh, is already over eight hundred billion, and that is just uh, not about defending the United States. It's about projecting U.S. power to protect the investments of global corporations based in the United States all over the world. And that's imperialism. And we should that should not be what our defense is about. Our defense should be about defending our country and, you know, maybe providing support for people defending their countries. I would say that's true in Ukraine, but not true in most of the places where we're sending military arms. Instead of opposing the Russian occupation in the case of Ukraine, the U.S. is supporting occupations in the case of Israel on the West Bank, $3.8 billion a year in aid. Uh, in the case of uh, Morocco, which is occupying most of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, you might know it as Spanish Sahara, they want independence. Morocco has occupied it, uh, not uh, in line with international law. Another example is the military aid we give to Indonesia, which occupies West Papua, which wanted independence, and Indonesia sent their military, and this is back in the 60s, the U.S. backed them, and still backs them, occupying an area that wants independence. And uh, as a side note, there's a new Green Party forming in West Papua. Uh, there's a freedom movement that calls for a a green state. It's basically a Green New Deal type of uh, program for developing uh, West Papua, which with Indonesia's military support is, uh, there's a lot of mining going on there by global corporations that is destroying the environment. And the U.S. is providing military aid to Indonesia uh, without, you know, any conditions on what goes on in West Papua. And, you know, then we're, you know, providing, I, th I think we have troops now in Peru doing exercises after that uh, coup. I mean, I, I you know, the, the president tried to dismiss the Congress and then the Congress impeached him and dismissed him. Uh, but it's really a right-wing coup and, and the indigenous people in particular are protesting and it's been very repressive. A lot of them have been killed. Um, and that fight goes on. They're, they're gonna later this month uh, call for a new round of protests. But the U.S. is backing that as an authoritarian government like it does many governments around the world. So that military budget is uh, not being used for defense, but for imperialism. And it's uh, much, much bigger than it needs to be for our defense. I called for 75 percent cuts in the military budget um, during the campaign. I got that number because uh, after World War II, we cut the military budget by 75 percent in two years before re-escalating for the Cold War. But, it, you know, that shows it can be done. And uh, during the campaign, uh, some people came out with a, a budget that would have cut the military by 74%, close enough. But it showed that there's just a lot of bloat and waste. And what we really need for defense could be covered easily with a quarter of what we're spending right now. So, you know, that's what I think about that National Defense Authorization Act. It's... Uh, it's not going to pass in the form the Republicans got it passed in the House, but it probably is going to pass, and it's much too much military spending. Vicki Corden, comments about a convention to amend the Constitution. Several Republicans will fix the Constitution to work for them. I heard a rehearsal convention is in August. Yeah, the right is organizing uh, to get a convention uh, to amend the Constitution in a very right-wing way. We need to change the Constitution in many ways, you know. I think the U.S. Senate is uh, an anti-democratic institution. Uh, lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court uh, are, you know, a recipe for what we got now, which is right-wing control of the Supreme Court uh, that is out of touch with the American people and, you know, common sense. Um, there's a lot of things we could do to, to better protect our rights. Um, 
But, you know, the, the left, the progressive side is not organized. We haven't really been talking about, you know, changing the basic structure of our government. The right has, and they've succeeded by capturing the federal courts in beginning to implement their program. So I, I think right now we shouldn't be calling for a convention because we're not ready for it, but we should be talking about structural changes to our former government. You know, and I've emphasized that, you know, I think for the Greens, the lead issue there, and this doesn't necessarily require constitutional changes at either federal or state level, but in some cases does, and that is to move to ranked choice voting for executive offices and proportional representation, probably through proportional ranked choice voting for legislative bodies. That would open up the political system to include the Greens and some other political currents that are now totally excluded. Uh, and that would create a, a government that more reflected better what the people of the United States think. And uh, I think that's the one thing we can push on right now. And then, uh, you know, I've always argued that at the local level, we should be pushing, you know, what grassroots democracy should mean for the Greens is citizen assemblies, like New England town meetings in neighborhoods and towns where the the basic power in the government is held by the people who meet face-to-face -face in regular meetings. And from there, uh, what they do in, in New England is they elect their, they call them aldermen in most cases, their, their council, their executive body to implement the decisions of the town meeting, which usually include the budget and some resolutions on policy. Um, and you can expand that power by having uh, councils that represent the assemblies, uh, the people elected should be instantly recallable. They should be subject to imperative mandates, instructions from the assemblies on how to deal with issues that come before the councils. The councils are, you know, representatives for a wider area, citywide, countywide, regionwide, statewide. Um, and that would, you know, bring power back to the local level. We can work on that by when we campaign for local offices, say we want to amend city, county, town, village uh, charters to incorporate, institutionalize these citizen assemblies in the structure of local government. And that's the way to spread this uh, approach at the grassroots. So, um, you know, basically what I'm saying is we have to take up the constitutional questions about the structure of government and the rights that it gives to the people uh, and start organizing around those issues. The far right the conservative establishment right is way ahead of us on this. You know, the Federalist Society, you know, which promotes these right-wing judges uh, and all these right-wing think tanks have been working on this for decades and we're behind. So I think it's an issue we have to address, but uh, we're not ready for, you know, a constitutional convention if the states authorized it because the right is organized and we're not. So we got to start working on those issues. Garrett Wasserman, many industries are going on strike right now. How can Greens best support? How can we encourage unions to join independent politics instead of relying on Democrats? Well, to the first question, uh, right now, uh, people should be getting in touch with their uh, UPS Teamster locals and finding out you know, what they're doing to get ready for this strike that may come on August 1st. The contract runs out July 31st. Uh, the company walked away from negotiations. Most of the questions have been resolved. Uh, the union gained a lot of things like uh, introducing air conditioning to trucks where sometimes uh, these guys are out there in the heat. Some have died. Some got heat stroke. Uh, it needs to be addressed. Um, there are other questions relating to work conditions that were resolved. Uh, they got rid of the two tiers for drivers where the veterans were getting a much higher wage than the new drivers. Uh, now what remains is under you know contention is how much are they gonna pay, particularly the part-timers who start out at around, you know, I, I think the last contract, I think it was $10 an hour, but they, they can't get anybody to work for that. So, you know, most places they start around 15 and they can get up to 20 if they stick around for a while. Uh, the union wants that to be more like 25. And uh, and then also the 
um, full-timers who do have a higher wage deserve a raise. The company's made over $100 billion last year. They can afford it. So that's the sticking point. And at this point, uh, I look every day. I haven't seen them go back to bargain. There's still time. It's getting short because not only do they have to agree on a contract between the, the bargaining group from the union and the company, then it's got to go to the members of the union to ratify. And that takes some time. <coughs> and at this point, they may not happen before uh, July 31st when the contract runs out. And the union may say, we don't have a contract yet. The members are still voting on it. We're not going to work without a contract. Or they may say, uh, we'll see what the members say. And then if they reject the contract, we go on strike. I'm not sure how they're going to play that. But in any case, uh, how can we best support? Uh, find out what's going on in your area with the UPS workers. You know, contact the Teamsters. A lot of them are doing practice uh, picketing right now. You can go out and join them. Uh, in 97, when we really won a good contract, we, we did it in two weeks, and the company had to cry uncle because they were losing a lot of business to, at that time, FedEx and DHL. Uh, now there's Amazon in the game, uh, post office, of course, um, and there are already uh, companies that have been using UPS switching to the other companies in anticipation of a strike. So the company is vulnerable, and, you know, I... I just can't believe they're going to let this strike happen. But on the other hand, never underestimate the greed and hubris of these people that run these big corporations. Um, so, you know, anyway, get in touch with your UPS Teamsters. Now, how can we encourage unions to join independent politics instead of relying on Democrats? I would say two things here. One is our candidates should, you know, aggressively ask the unions for meetings about getting endorsed. And you'd be surprised, particularly in local elections. You know, the high stakes elections for senator, governor, even Congress are tougher. But you're running for city council, county legislature, uh, town councils. Uh, you know, sometimes the unions are ready. Yeah, we'll support you because you're pro-union. And uh, I've got a lot of endorsements that way. And a lot of Greens have. And that's building a relationship. Now, that tends to be the the more active members and staff and officers of local unions, which doesn't necessarily mean the rank and file. The other thing we got to do is reach out to rank and file workers. So they push their unions or, you know, push themselves to get unions. But in any case, um, push uh, for independent politics from below, from within the unions. And that means the Greens got to, Stop just, you know, putting out Facebook posts or whatever, mobilizing the usual suspects and actually going out and talking to people, whether it's at factory gates or, you know, warehouse gates where you, or, you know, when hospitals change shifts and you can get people going to the parking lot or better yet, going to working class neighborhoods, knock on doors, get to know people, do deep canvassing. I've talked about where you aren't there so much preaching what the Greens have to offer, but listening to what people's concerns are building relationships. And then you can relate what the Greens are talking about to their concerns. And also you may find out the Greens uh, have some issues they need to deal with that they haven't been because that's what they're hearing from people. So that means we got to organize the base of working class people in the Green Party. And then they can go into the unions and push for uh, support for Green candidates. So I think that's that's an important area. The majority of people are working people. And if we're going to take power, we got to have them on our side. Violet at Content Boutique. Fair labor laws should be federally universal. Having to strike for air conditioning and heaters in a hot freezing van and fair employment practices is insane. Uh, yeah, we should be pushing for federal labor standards. There is a Fair uh, Labor Standards Act. Uh, it needs improvement. Historically, it excluded agricultural and domestic workers. In other words, at the time, this was about done by the Dixiecrats that passed in the 30s. That meant black people. It meant uh, 
Chicanos in the Southwest. Uh, it meant, you know, racial minorities in other parts of the country um, that, you know, were predominantly the agricultural and domestic workers. Uh, the domestic workers are now covered. Uh, agricultural workers, yeah, I'm, I'm not up on, on, I think there have been some reforms, but they need to go further because I know we're still fighting in the states for this stuff. Um, and then there are other things that all of us need to benefit, like, you know, our paid family leave law in this country is, you know, there isn't one. I mean, it's like us in Afghanistan that don't have one. Now, every country, every other country has something. Uh, some of them are pretty weak, but at least they have it. I mean, the idea that and this is what the rail workers were going out on, you know, they, or almost went out on strike over. And that is the ability, you know, when you're sick or you have a you know, family crisis you not need to address, being able to take that time off. And, you know, getting a time off is one thing. Getting that as a paid day off is another. But these are things that we need to fight for in legislation. Another thing is uh, universal health care through a Medicare for all system or what we would prefer Medicare for all as a community controlled national health service that covers not only, uh, you know, paying for the medical services, but owning and controlling democratically the medical facilities. And uh, also all the ancillary, uh, you know, companies that uh, feed into the healthcare system you know, from pharmacies to funeral services. And there's there was some articles this week on how private equity on Wall Street is buying up these companies and creating local monopolies, you know, regional monopolies, so they can jack up the prices. And it's raising the cost of the whole healthcare system. That's why we need not just socialized health insurance, which pays private providers. We need a socialized system that includes you know, pharmacies, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, the ambulance companies, the whole thing should be under uh, community control and federally funded. So um, that's another thing. If you have universal health care, then bargaining over health care benefits is you don't have to. And you can, you know, bargain on other things like working conditions and wages. So, yes, uh, a lot of this federal stuff should be a lot of these uh, labor conditions should be uh, federally, should be federal standards. Um, but we don't want to uh, dismiss the right to strike, which we haven't been using a lot for about 50 years, uh, because that's where workers have real power and the companies have to deal with us. Uh, if we have, uh, you know, unity within a union and solidarity from other unions, which brings up another labor law, we got to change the Taft-Hartley Act, which, uh, Truman tried to veto the Republican Congress. It came in after 1946, passed it. He, Truman called it the Slave Labor Act, and that opened the door to right to work states and made illegal solidarity picketing. So, um, you know, like a UPS driver, right? Uh, we had a strike up here where uh, the Snapple, you know, bottling uh, factory went on strike. And because UPS got this in their contract with the UPS, uh, the Teamsters got it in the contract with UPS, we will not cross picket lines. UPS won't. But every other delivery uh, service, you know, FedEx, Amazon, post office, they will. Um, so that's something we had to fight to get in our contract, uh, the Teamsters with the UPS. Um, but if you don't have it in your contract and then you do, uh, honor picket lines or do solidarity strikes uh, or secondary boycotts of companies that are being challenged with a strike. That's illegal. And the government and the company do a lawsuit and have the government come after you for that. So that's another law that needs to be repealed or, or radically reformed. That's Taft-Hartley. So, yeah, there's a lot of things we need to do. We have this PRO Act. Protect Our Right to Organize Act, which the Democrats said they would pass when they, if they got, you know, both houses of Congress, which they did, but they wouldn't go after the filibuster in the Senate, which enabled the Republicans to veto it. So it passed the House, couldn't get through the Senate. And that's one of many progressive reforms that the House passed 
in the previous session of Congress that got blocked in the Senate. And now with the Republicans having a slight majority in the House, none of that stuff is even getting out of the House. So the PRO Act, I mean, this is, you know, Obama promised to do an earlier version of it, uh, which would have opened the, uh, the principal reform there was card check union recognition. So when a majority of people in the union sign a card saying, I want to be in the union and bargain with the company, then you, then you have to bargain. And there were provisions that would force the company if they were, you know, delaying or refusing to bargain. Uh, Obama promised to do that. And then he didn't do it in his first term, didn't do nothing about it. And, you know, labor said, you know, why should we support you if you won't do this? He said, oh, I'll do it in my second term. And he got reelected. And I know he told the Teamsters very arrogantly, uh, no, we're not going to do it. Just I won too bad. It was uh, so that's what we get from the Democrats. Another reason why we need the Green Party to, you know, fight for these social and labor standards at the federal level. Via email, comments on the WGA SAG strikes shutting down Hollywood. The first time both have been on strike at the same time since Reagan was SAG president. Yeah, that was 1960. That's true. Although uh, there's another actor. Uh, I'm forgetting his name. He was Maverick, and then he was on some kind of spy thing. I'm not a big TV guy. He says he actually, you know, did all the work. Reagan just was a, you know, a talking head for them. But in any case, yeah, this is a big deal. And it deals with issues that we're all going to have to deal with, like artificial intelligence, you know, taking the place of actors with, you know, they, they take a picture of you and then, you know, sort of animate it, but it's not animated. It's real. Um and, and even they're using artificial intelligence to, you know, do a lot of the drafting of scripts. Um, that's a concern. And then, you know, the residuals, um, you know, they th that used to work well when everything was on TV and cable. Now it's on streaming. And uh, the actors aren't getting uh, the residuals they you think they should deserve. So that's those are some of the issues. And you know that that's 160,000 people. UPS is 350,000 people. I mean, we could have half a million people out on strike in early August, which I haven't looked up the numbers, but I imagine that's the most we've had on strike in many, many years. So uh, now we do have some movie production here in Syracuse. They even the state even built a studio that really isn't being used, but. Um, I don't have any connections to that union, but if you do, uh, I'm sure they'd appreciate you joining their picket lines. Coast Mike, what do you say? What do you have to say about Cornell West sinking the nomination for the Green Party? Well, I, I've talked about this before. I'm glad he's doing it. A lot of people were pushing me to run again because no candidates who were really organizing serious campaigns had stepped up. And I was dreading even trying to pull together a campaign. Most of my uh, campaign team from 2020 is up to their eyeballs with family and job commitments. Two of the key people have passed away. So, uh, you know, I'm relieved Cornell stepped up. And I've talked to him. I'm trying to give him my two cents worth on you know, what he should be doing and issues he should be emphasizing and positions he should be taking. And I hope, you know, he'll continue to at least listen to what I'm suggesting. Um, he has a much, you know, broader reach than I ever did. I'm a retired Teamster warehouse worker. And while I'm known pretty well on the left and in the Green Party, you know, in the general public, I'm not. Cornell is. And he's got a lot of attention because of that as a celebrity which is, you know, an advantage for him. Um, I think it's key. He's got to turn that uh, interest and, you know, people contributing uh, both volunteer time and money into a campaign organization that builds infrastructure, builds locals of the Green Party. So they're not just ready to petition to get him on the ballot in the states where we need to do that, but to support him as legs on the ground as the campaign goes on. And also to be there for the long haul. You know, Cornell does say we got to build a movement 
to back up what the party's doing. And that means grassroots organizing. So I hope, uh, and I'm urging the campaign to, you know, emphasize that in, in, in what it's doing. Um, so basically, I think, you know, it's it's good that Cornell's running with the Green Party. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here to try to make the best of it we can. Betty Dimmitt, if West should emerge as the Green uh, presidential candidate, should he be looking for a VP pick with the chops in the technical area to offset his tight focus on social aspects? Um, the technical area, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Um, you mean a policy wonk, you know, or, or a scientifically technical person? Um, I think uh, you, you want somebody who can articulate well, the program of the Green Party in both, you know, the the technical, which I imagine is questions like environment and policy on AI and artificial intelligence and, you know, um, media and those kinds of issues, as well as, you know, the social issues of jobs, healthcare, housing, um, and those kinds of issues. So um, I think, you know, the best thing for a vice presidential candidate is somebody that you know, knows the policy issues and can articulate them well. Frankie Lee, what about Dr. West not moving away from Nick Bronner, who's just a con man? Shouldn't Cornell disavow him? I get the impression from talking to Cornell that he's moved away. Uh, it's not necessary to publicly disavow him. I think just emphasize, you know, you're running as a green and uh, just let Nick Brana, just let him stew in obscurity. Don't give him any more attention. Garrett Wasserman, with all the interest in Cornell West, what can greens do to onboard new members into the party and grow the eco-socialist movement? Well, we need to be better organized at the local level. Uh, you know, we need to have places where people can go in their communities or a place where they can go to get help organizing a local in their communities, which brings up, you know, the state parties. Some of them do that pretty well. Others are just no shape to do that. You know, if somebody inquires with the national party, I want to get involved. And, and so the national party just refers them to whatever state organization we have there. But some of those state organizations are not even up to, you know, contacting that person and, and getting them, you know, onboarded into the state party because there's not much of a state party. So that's the other thing we got to do is get the state parties better organized. And I would argue that, you know, I've been calling for a mass membership party. People, you know, agree to, you know, the green principles, pay dues. And then at the national level, you have uh, good organizers who can help the state parties and help locals get organized and provide support. And right now we just have a minimal operation at the national level. And it really is just counting on the states to organize themselves. And some of those states need help. Um, in other cases, you've got, you know, an entrenched leadership that's very small. They tend to be old. They're running out of energy uh, or they're just holding on to the franchise. Uh, and that's a problem. And, and so we've got to organize at the grassroots to, you know, revitalize those state parties. So, you know, this is multidimensional. Now, uh, that's what Greens can do. I think also the Cornell West campaign can help if they have, if they're able to uh, support a field organizer or field organizers who can help the state parties and the locals do this, you know, to get better organized and become, you know, ongoing local and state organizations. Um, and what tends to happen particularly given that the Green Party just every once in a while asks for some money and barely supports its minimal staff, is that Cornell will have more money than the party does. And if he puts some money into organizing, uh, it will benefit his campaign as well as the Green Party. So I, I hope they go in that direction. Nathaniel Gregory, will Mr. West help build local Green Parties with supporting of the Green Socialist Organizing Project, if you mentioned 
about that to him. Um, all I've said to him is, you know, what I just said, that I hope the campaign, uh, you know, has a way of bringing the people who volunteer, sign up, uh, getting them into local Green parties or helping them organize them if they don't exist where they are. Um, so they need some good organizers on the staff. Um, I didn't mention, you know, with the, the Green Social Organizing Project as an organization that can help. Uh, our intention is to help that kind of organizing. Uh, right now, we're pretty small. We're able to do the educational stuff. Uh, we've done some consulting with state parties. We're, we're helping some uh, get organized or better organized. But our capacity is, is very limited. Um, we're all volunteers. Although I'd say at the GSOP level, we probably have as much energy or more than the National Green Party in terms of, you know, staffing and what they do. But we're also limited as well. Um, but I think, you know, everybody in the Green Social Organizing Project uh, is willing to do what we can. And, and hopefully as we grow, we'll be able to do more. So maybe we should put the link to the Green Social Organizing Project in the chat at some point and people can take a look at it, maybe become a member. We have monthly Zoom calls. We talk about what we're doing and what we want to do. And uh, you can get involved if you, if you like what we're doing. B.D. Dimmitt, West is talking a plan to court voters who have been with the GOP because they see that as the lesser evil. Is that something that should be part of a response to the DNC attacks on spoilers? Uh, no, nah, I don't think that's our most effective answer to the spoiler question. I think our most effective answer is we improve elections. We don't spoil them. Example, 1948, Henry Wallace, Truman, because he was losing votes to Wallace, adopted Wallace's domestic program. And once he did that, he caught up with Dewey and made that, you know, surprise victory on election night. Uh, so that's an example of how an independent left party improved an election. And, you know, among the things that Wallace was talking about that Truman then uh, tried to do is what we call Medicare for all today, national health insurance. Um, the Democrats had that in their platform until the 90s when Clinton came in and never got it done, even though they had control of Congress. That has to do with the power of the uh, physicians at one time and then later the insurance companies. Um, but that's, you know, Wallace moved the whole debate to the left. And here in, in my congressional district, in the last 50 years, the only times a Democrat has won the district is two times. And it's only when Greens were in the race. And we got in the race and the Democrats said, oh, you're going to split the vote and the right wing Republicans going to win. But that was the only time the Democrat won. Because when we raised our issues, like the Green New Deal, like Medicare for All and so forth, the Democrat had to respond. And it couldn't respond negatively. So the Democrats sounded better than they really were. And they beat the Republicans. We moved the debate. Uh, without us in the race, the Democrats tend to go back to their old playbook, and that is take the progressive side for granted and try to move to the right to get the swing voters in the middle. And that's a recipe for losing. The Democrats prove it over and over again at the presidential level and in my congressional district and in many other places. So um, trying to go back to the oh, answer to the spoiler question. So that's one. We don't spoil elections. We improve them. And you can give examples. The other is, we got a way of doing away with the spoiler pro, uh, problem. And that is in presidential elections, a ranked choice national popular vote for president. And everybody can vote for their first choice and not worry about it helping their worst enemy. So turn it around. You know, if I was Cornell West, I'd say, we got an answer to the spoiler problem. It's ranked choice national popular vote. I'm asking Joe Biden, will he support that? And we can do away with the spoiler problem. And the damn electoral college, the only way Republicans have won the presidency at first in the 21st century, this century, is through the electoral college after they lost the popular vote with George W. Bush and Donald Trump. 
you would think the Democrats would say, hey, that electoral college is biased against us. Let's get rid of it. So, you know, Cornell should be asking Joe Biden to join him in moving to a national popular vote using ranked choice voting. So I think we got better answers. Now, your answer was we're going to take votes from the right as well as the left. I think that's a fantasy. You know, there may be a few, you know, Sanders people who are anti-elite who went with Trump, got conned by him. Uh, but I think at this point, you know, the people with Trump are with Trump. And it's not about policy. It's about Trump the strong man. You know, Trump, Trump the you know, guy who dominates the scene. And those people are authoritarian. And, you know, that's not what the Green Party is about. So I think um, while you can appeal to those people who, when they look at Joe Biden and they hear Trump's, you know, false promises for prosperity, you know, might vote for Trump and, and you can maybe get a few of them. But it, I wouldn't make it a major strategy. I would focus on putting forward a positive program. And the progressive voters in this country, you know, by most polls, they're the majority on the things we really want, like a Green New Deal and Medicare for all. You know, we get 60 percent and up. Now, a lot of people, you know, because of the spoiler problem, will vote for the Democrat despite that. Um, but, you know, we can get a lot of the vote. And, you know, that's the power. That's what the Democrats are really afraid of. They know their program is not very popular. And uh, so I think we put forward that program and then, you know, force Biden to move our way, force the political system to move our way. That is a more effective strategy than I, I think than trying to, uh, you know, go to the, the to the Trump voters. And I know Cornell says, you know, he wants to say, I know you're hurting and we got answers for you. And, you know, he should say that. But uh, the idea that we're going to get a lot of Trump voters to vote green, I think, is a fantasy. At war with dust. Why don't Greens tout how they help down ballot Dems by motivating disaffected progressives to vote? Haven't heard anyone mention Stein won Maggie Hassan her seat, that was in New Hampshire, which saved Obamacare. The same can be said uh, for Ralph Nader's uh, run in 2000. The people he pulled to the polls probably put uh, Debbie Stabenow in uh, Michigan and uh, another woman who was elected to the Senate in Washington, whose name I forget. Uh, but it's pretty clear uh, the Green voters, when they went down ballot, voted for those Democrats. And uh, so, yeah, we do help uh, Democrats down ballot because our people, when they, when they, you know, after they look on the ballot and see who's green, and then they go to the other races, you know, nine times out of ten, they're going to vote for the Democrat over the Republican. So uh, I think that's that's an argument. I, I kind of make it third or fourth uh, in the arguments against the spoiler problem. I think the first one is ranked choice voting, and the second one is we improve elections uh, and use the 1948 model of the Harris or the Wallace campaign as an example. Via email, thoughts on DeSantis seeming collapse in the GOP primary? Yeah, I think he's trying to win with the culture war. And while that has a base in the, you know, hardcore Christian right, uh, it's not really what's motivating most uh, Republicans. I think what's motivating, you know, that Trump core is uh, racism and authoritarianism. You know, they want a strong leader and they want, you know, uh, they want to preserve white supremacy, white privilege. And that's what I think is motivating. And the Trump core, you know, a lot of people think it's, you know, uh, blue collar workers. No, it's it's petty bourgeois, you know, small business, middle management, those types of folks. Uh, that's the core of Trump's base. And they tend to be a, a social class that. Uh, will go to the right uh, when they feel competition coming up from below. Working class people, people of color, immigrants, women, LGBTQ. Uh, so they're susceptible to the scapegoating and politics of resentment 
that Trump thrives on. Uh, the culture war stuff, DeSantis just goes so far. You know, he goes further than Trump on that. And I think a lot of those people are like, yeah, uh, we're concerned about these issues, but, but DeSantis is just at the extremes. <laughs> Even the MAGA Republicans uh, can't get, get excited about. Um, I think that's one thing. I think, you know, his presidency, you know, Trump is good at giving nicknames. They call him, he calls him the sanctimonious. And, you know, when I look at DeSantis, he comes across that way to me. So um, I'm not sure he has the, the, I don't think he's connecting with uh, those Republican voters. So anyway, uh, that's, that's my thoughts on DeSantis's problems. Yeah, Betty Beatty points out that it was Maria Cantwell in Washington State who probably got over the top because Nader pulled more voters to the polls. Um, via email, thoughts on uh, Marguerite, Margaret Taylor Green being kicked out of the Freedom Caucus. Um, I guess that's about her providing cover for McCarthy because some of the Freedom Caucus you know, want to get rid of McCarthy and get one of their own in there. Uh, I haven't followed that. I mean, she's just off the wall. Out, what's the word? Off the chart? Off the island? She's, you know, crazy things she says, like Jewish lasers were starting forest fires in, you know, the West. She said that a couple of years ago. Um, she's just, you know, one of these, you know, Southern white supremacists. Whack, what's the word? Wackos? Or, uh, anyway, it's kind of funny that... Uh, you know, she she she's not extreme enough for the Freedom Caucus, and she's pretty damn extreme. So they're just over there on the far right. They don't want to govern. They just want to uh, spread confusion, it seems. Nathaniel Gregory, what would be the best way for restoring restoring socialism? like we are trying on the eco-socialist side for Ukraine, for other countries to overthrow capitalism and implement eco-socialism globally. Well, I think one of the things we've got to do is we've got to be international socialists. Uh, and when we can come to situations like Ukraine, we don't start looking at what NATO wants and the U.S. wants and what Russia wants. We look at what the Ukrainian people want. They are the victims of this a war of aggression. They're fighting for their national liberation. And as socialists, we support, you know, self-determination and national liberation for oppressed nations. And Ukraine is certainly that. If you know its history, you know it's been through centuries of periods where they were enslaved by the Ottoman Empire and then ensurfed by the Poles and the Russians for centuries. And then even during World War II, I think a couple million of them, the Nazis, brought to Germany as slave labor. Um, and then when they were under the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union, except for a brief period when Lenin was in charge, uh, their language and culture and identity were suppressed. And that's what Putin you know, has said very openly he wants to do and the people around him, even in more extreme forms. So, you know, capitalism is a global system. And so to replace what it's doing you know, about the climate and the environment, uh, we got to replace it globally, which means we got to be in, in international solidarity. Now, in Ukraine, there is uh, the people on the left, the socialists, the greens, the feminists, the people in the trade unions, the anarchists, they all are somewhat astonished and grateful that the resistance to Russia's invasion is massively popular. And it's largely self-organized in civil society because the state is weak there. It doesn't support social service as well. It's kind of got a libertarian, neoliberal approach. That's Zelensky's party. They're really extreme in that regard. So the people themselves have done it with mutual aid projects, humanitarian aid projects, uh, providing you know, support for people who are displaced, whose homes have been bombed by the Russians and destroyed. Uh, for the soldiers who can't get certain supplies or even comforts from 
uh, the military itself. So they're providing that kind of support. Uh, and it's, so it's really a people's war, you know, a massive resistance, both in the civic side and the armed side. And what these people on the left in Ukraine will say is that uh, most people in Ukraine, they want decent social services. They're not for this austerity they're getting from the Zelensky government. Uh, they kind of expect that. And uh, now that they've found their own power through self-organization and, you know, particularly the soldiers on the front through fighting for their land, uh, any government after the war is going to have to deal with them. They're going to have power. And so the politics of Ukraine uh, may be changing for the better. We already saw an indication of that in the 2019 election where the far right uh, for the first time got no seats in the in the parliament, you know, I'm talking about right sector and Svoboda and uh, the party, what's it called, National Corps, I think, around uh, the remnants of the original Azov battalion. Uh, they formed a coalition and they got, what, 2.15% for the parliament. You needed 5% to get your people off your list into the parliament. And then for president, their, their candidate got, I think, 1.56%. Really marginal. And then when the runoff came, it was Poroshenko who represented the more Ukrainian nationalist side and Zelensky, who was a Russian-speaking Jew from eastern Ukraine. And he won with over 70% in the runoff, which indicates that Ukraine is moving away from the you know, uh, nationalist divide between ultra-Russian and ultra-Ukrainian nationalists toward a more multicultural, uh, cosmopolitan kind of democracy. Um, and so that's what we can hope for. And what we can do as socialists is to support the left in Ukraine. You know, first of all, get the Russians off their back. And second of all, uh, you know, fight for the, the rights, the labor and social rights and political rights of the people of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, we need that international solidarity. Uh, so what I'm saying is while we militarily support Ukraine in resisting the Ukrainian government in resisting the Russian invasion. Politically, our support should be so for those groups on the left, the trade unions, the feminists, the anarchists, the socialists, and the Greens. And, uh, you know, they are, uh, when you listen to them, they're, they're kind of optimistic as to where this is moving. They they will tell you, you know, most the, Ukrainian, Ukraine is not a Nazi society. You know, they, the far right is marginalized. They, they have an over-representation uh, and impact on street politics because they're organized and they fight, and they're a problem. You know, when the left has demonstrations, they'll get attacked by those right-wing groups physically. I mean, they have to defend themselves. But in, when it comes to voting, you know, they got nothing. And uh, the problem in that last election was there was no, you know, popular party of the people. All those parties were backed by various oligarchs. So what you've got in their parliament now are... Uh, parties that are oligarch-backed and tend to, you know, support these neoliberal economic policies. So that's a big challenge for the left in Ukraine is getting their own party uh, well enough organized to have a real impact on the next parliamentary elections. The Green Party there did well in the 90s. And, you know, I've talked with, uh, you know, some of the socialists there who said, I asked them, why was that, you know, and what happened since? And they said, well, in the 90s, they were the only party with a positive, serious program for social reform. Uh, but as it got into the 2000s, uh, the oligarchic parties, which on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side promoted that nationalism and divided the country, uh, you know, the Greens got pushed to the side in that fight. And then other uh, groups on the left started picking up environmental issues as well. So the Greens didn't stick out so much. Um, so anyway. Uh, I think, you know, the international angle to promoting eco-socialism is really important uh, because we've got these petrol states like Russia, uh, big consumers like China, petrol states like Saudi Arabia, uh, as well as the United States. we got to defeat all of them if we're going to have a, you know, a global Green New Deal. Uh, so we, we need an international movement and, and we need to be supporting each other. And then within this country, um, you know, I think more and more Greens are running as open eco-socialists. Uh, we do have more socialism being discussed 
really is kind of a legacy of the uh, Sanders campaigns. DSA got a big boost from his campaigns. And uh, while they're working in the Democratic Party, they say they're working for socialism. I think I see a contradiction there, but OK, at least socialism is being talked about. And uh, I also think we got to give a little credit to Fox News, who kept calling Obama a socialist. And a lot of people liked Obama, so he said, maybe I'm a socialist. So I think that's that's part of what changed the uh, the attitude about you know socialism in the last decade. So anyway, um, you know the biggest problem we have with socialism for most people is they have no idea what we're talking about. You know, most people think it's it's authoritarian. It's like the old Soviet Union, um, whereas what we're really talking about is economic democracy, anti-authoritarian. So that's. Uh, that's a discussion that uh, we need to keep having. I think that's education still a big part of that. And then, you know, being out there with our candidates and, and being unapologetic, that that's what we're talking about. And then explaining in concrete terms what it means, not just shouting socialism or eco-socialism. Boy, these hours go fast. So I appreciate everybody being here. I know it's hot in most parts of the country. So be safe out there and take care of yourself. We'll be here next week. I've, I've got a bunch of guests I'm lining up. Um, I don't think I'll have, I might have one next week. We'll see. Um, depends on a phone call I'm gonna have here pretty soon. But uh, soon we're gonna, we're gonna have people, uh, you know, from Puerto Rico to Ukraine to uh, places around the United States. So uh, we'll get off just the question and answers to me. So uh, hope to see you next week. And thanks for being here today. Have a good week. Oh.